1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I just had a really fun hour talking with Mark Rowe about his very recent book, Hot Off the Presses with Chicago Bonds of the Dead, Temples, Burial, and the Transformation of Contemporary Japanese Buddhism. Now, this is a book that's not only full of really fascinating stories, as is Rowe himself, as you'll hear um, in the next hour. Um, But it uses a very focused study of the care of material remains and care of the body after death in contemporary Japan to look at a much broader set of issues and a much broader question um, about the very meaning and future of Buddhism in Japan, as he puts it. According to Rowe in the beginning of his book, um, he talks in the introduction about one of the central questions motivating this very uh, multidisciplinary and very rich study of Buddhism in contemporary Japan. According to Rowe, and I quote this, the question then is not, is there such a thing as Buddhism in Japan? a single thing. This is um, what he's talking about. But rather, why are we not including all of these different things that happen at temples, graves, and sectarian research centers as legitimate elements of that larger thing? It still seems to make sense to call, quote, Japanese Buddhism. Now, Rowe's book is a really exemplary um, way to get at this very vibrant and alive tradition of uh, Japanese Buddhism and, and, you know, both traditional and, um, very new forms. Um, and I hope you enjoy, as I did, uh, listening to Mark talk about it. Hi, Mark. Hi, Carla. We're here today to talk with Mark Rowe about his really fascinating recent book, Bonds of the Dead, Temples, Burial, and the Transformation of Contemporary Japanese Buddhism that just came out with University of Chicago Press. And I think it just came out in November, um, 2001. So it's hot off the presses. Um, This is a fascinating study of what we might consider the life of Buddhism in modern Japan by looking at the many facets of death um, in modern Japanese Buddhism. So thank you so much, Mark, for being here with us today. And um, agreeing to talk about your book.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Great. Oh, it's it's my pleasure entirely. Um, Mark, could you actually start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Sure. Um, I'm not sure how far back to go. (laughs) But uh, I mean, I studied Japanese uh, as an undergrad uh, and realized I wasn't learning what I needed to. So I I dropped out I was going to Northwestern at the time and I dropped out and went to Japan on my own and taught English and studied Japanese, uh, and confirmed my love for the place. And, um, as soon as I, I went back and finished my undergrad, Whoa, sorry.
1: <laughs> no problem.
0: <laughs> Maybe instead that, I should have that, hold on a sec. <laughs> 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 sorry that was my wife that's terrible
1: no worries yeah. well she comes up in the book too right so this is actually appropriate that she's part of the discussion of the book because that's how you start off the book right
0: yeah so. yeah so uh just to finish that story uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway i went back uh And as soon as I was able, I applied for a ministry uh, of education scholarship to come back to Japan. And I did an MA and most of a PhD at Kyoto University between 94 and 2000. Mm -hmm. Um, and during that time, I started looking at, um, temples and burial. I mean, I think like a lot of Westerners, I came, you know, I started doing zazen and chanting the nembutsu and and doing different practices. But it's, I soon realized, um, you know, that the Buddhism in Japan is not about uh, necessarily about meditation or seeking enlightenment in snow-covered temples. Uh, it really is about death and memorials and graves. Um, so I f- did all that work, and then I realized that I, if I wanted to teach in North America, I needed a Ph.D. from a North American institution. So I went back to um, Princeton and did a Ph.D. there where we met and um, continued that research and into um, basically into contemporary Buddhism in Japan through kind of the lens of death and memorials. Mm-hmm.
1: You actually mention um, well, in the book that while you were at Kyoto University as a grad student in the 90s, you traveled very extensively um, to lots of temples throughout Japan. Did you know back then um, that this is the kind of topic that you wanted to work on?
0: Um, I think... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think like a lot of graduate students, I didn't realize, you know, what kind of lifelong commitment I was making, um, you know. And for years, even even now, people are still like, "Oh, you're the death guy, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Doctor Death."
0: Exactly. I've talked to other people. Well, also, I, and it took. I'm embarrassed by how long it took me to come up with it, but you know, my last name is Roe, so Death Roe came up quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think, you know, I, I was interested in the topic. I guess it, it comes down to your personality. Um, I love, you know, reading. I love reading the text, but my real joy comes from talking to people to looking at how Buddhism actually plays out mm-hmm. in a living situation. And it, it wasn't, I realized quite quickly that that's where my interest lay. I think that's where my skill set, uh, is best put to use. Um, and so. Although I didn't realize the extent of it at the time, um, I did know that that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I continue to do it to this day. I love my job. <laughs> I travel around the country, you know, uh, up late talking to priests about their lives and their temples. It's fantastic fun.
1: Yeah. And that joy really comes out in the book. Um, I think it, the reader really gets a sense of how much um, you are passionate about this work. So I think that translated really well. Great. Um, so how did you come to decide on this particular topic or the topic of this book um, as a refining of this much broader experience that you had um, in Japanese studies and traveling j- through Japan? How did you settle on this as a topic? This is your dissertation, right?
0: Right. It's, it's pulling off the dissertation. I mean, you know, the difference between a dissertation and a book could be a whole interview in and of itself. But basically, as I see, the dissertation is a collection of all this great stuff you found Uh, and you want to show people, but the book has to be an argument. Um, And I think that, I mean, the main reason I did this is because there's no one really looking at uh, contemporary Japanese Buddhism, the traditional sects. Most scholars of Japanese religions in the contemporary period focus on the so-called new religions um, and Buddhist studies is not not particularly interested in Japanese Buddhism after, say, the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there was a real gap in our knowledge. And considering the fact that there are 75,000 temples, over 300,000 ordained priests in Japan today, I felt that that was kind of an oversight and that we needed to (laughs) address that lack of scholarship. Even today, there are only a handful of us looking at, at this kind of stuff.
1: Right. Well, great. Well, let's, um, let's get into the book itself. Um, this, so if we, I'm going to start at the beginning and, and take us through, or you can actually take us through, um, the journey of this book, but before we get to the journey, it opens with, um, this really evocative summer scene of you and your family at your wife's family's ancestral grave in, uh, Tokushima and forgive me in advance if I'm pronouncing, (laughs) just correct my pronunciation. Um, So you talk about the dead here as being hungry and thirsty and craving things like incense and food, but also craving conversation and attention um, and remembrance. And this really sets the scene for the reader um, for the tone of the discussion to come. Um, For listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read the book, can you talk about this scene a little bit?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, it's a scene that is repeated every summer for us. but. You know, like most Japanese families, we have an ancestral grave um, in the countryside, far removed from where we live now in cities. We go back to it uh, during the Summer Festival of the Dead uh, in August, uh, maybe at New Year's if we're going back for that. Um, And so we only see it, you know, once or twice a year when we do we notice that you know it hasn't been attended in a long time, and there's this process of cleaning. First, you clean everything out, take out the old um, shikimi leaves, um, scrub off the cobwebs and the dirt, um, replace everything with fresh water and fresh leaves, and we offer um, a glass of water and some raw rice, and It's just a time to sit and be with those people, um, some of whom you knew, some of of whom are are long removed. Uh, But when I'm there, I always think of my mother-in-law and father-in-law who were incredibly kind to me and accepted me into their families. And so I think that's the emotion that comes through in that. It was a moment much further along in my research um, that particular day that I'm describing. And it just kind of hit me that this wasn't a problem that I was describing, uh, you know, in an objective way. This was something that I really understood on an emotional level as part of a family. We felt, you know, uh, the guilt of not attending the grave in a long time. You, When you're confronted with the grave that hasn't been cleaned, um, I think it really, st- you know, it hits you deep. And, and you think about, you know... What those people did for you and your ongoing kind of responsibility to them. Um, I think that's the emotion that's there. Um, and it really, uh, it really clicked for me at that moment, um, not just on a personal level, but the book as a whole really clicked for me on that day. And that's why it's the lead in. I wrote it in about, without stopping in like five minutes, I just sat down and just poured out.
1: Well, wow. wow. I mean, it really does set this stage, I think, for what's to come, because you're already dealing with themes of um, abandonment and fear of abandonment and the grave as a, a site for um, creating social relations between not just the living and the dead, but also the living who um, exist and remain, who have some sort of relationship with the dead. And so I think it's a really perfect scene um, to open the story. Thank you. Um, so you use this chapter in the introduction, and I will be very brief with this. Um, uh, but you you said. Sent- Um, use this to set up themes that are going to reemerge throughout the rest of the book. So the book continues on as a study of the emergence of new funerary practices in Japan. And for those of us who um, don't have any expertise in this area, we're going to um, talk a lot about this uh, today because they're really fascinating and a complete surprise, again, for those of us who don't um, otherwise know about this. Um, And you use this to talk about how the care of the dead has become um, what you consider to be the most fundamental challenge, as you call it, to the continued existence of Japanese temple Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Um, So this goes on um, into a discussion of new forms of interment of dead bodies um, that have given rise to new types of relationships with temples. um, And we'll go on to talk about this. And these are increasingly based on individual choice rather than inherited obligation. Mm -hmm. So um, could you kind of start us off um, by talking a little bit in this context about what counts as a temple? Because you, you talk about a lot of different kinds of institutions in the course of the book, some of which are going to be, you know, very familiar and temple-y to readers, and some of which are actually quite surprising. So for you, when you're looking for a, a temple, what counts as a temple for your study?
0: Okay. Um, wow, that's an interesting question. I mean, basically, a temple is belongs to one of the seven uh, major sects of Japanese Buddhism, uh, Inzaizen, Sotozen, Nichiren, Tendai, Shingon, what am I, for? uh, Shinshu or Jodo. And, um, they generally have, uh, a parishioner base. Um, they most often have a graveyard on the temple grounds. They are run by a priest who, over the last hundred years, is, it's generally a hereditary position passed on from father to son. This is a, Particularly, particular characteristic of Japanese Buddhism, they eat meat, drink, uh, marry, and have children. Have to have children. Um, and the primary job of that temple is to watch over those graves, offer memorial services at regular intervals, and provide funerals for their parishioner base, um, and in many cases for um, for people who move to cities and who no longer are connected to their hometown temples. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what's fascinating is that as we continue to talk about the book, some of these temples are um, in r- rural areas. Some of them are um, basically in buildings in the middle of cities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said before, there are some seventy-five thousand temples across Japan. Now, a lot of those are um, not, if not abandoned, uh, you know, maybe twenty to thirty percent are run by a priest who comes in part-time. So some are just, would look like almost abandoned buildings uh, with a priest coming in when needed for services or coming in uh, like once a month. But there are also, you know, um, vibrant temples, both in the country and the city with thousands of parishioners, um, very active, holding all kinds of events. I mean, you've got the full range uh, of activity. Temples used to be, you know, a kind of center of public space. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, They are not that really anymore, uh, but there is a long history of that.
1: Right. Now, this actually is a really great way to get us into the next chapter of the book, which opens um, with a poem Right. So this poem introduced a booklet on the troubles facing temples and depopulated areas, and it was distributed to Nichiren temples in the 1980s. This is an exceptionally vivid poem. And um, I wonder if you could describe this poem a little bit for our readers and what significance it has for um, what you're doing in this chapter.
0: Right. Um, So... The Nichiren Research Group, um, and all the different sects maintain, uh, research centers. Uh, you know, they study, they're primarily studying the teachings of the founder and of, of, uh, older Buddhist texts. But, um, over the last few decades, they've also turned inward and kind of, they've got researchers studying Uh, these sects as organizations, as institutions in the present day. So they do surveys of temples, they interview uh, head priests, and they try and get a sense of, you know, numbers of increase and decline, of kind of basically taking the pulse of the sect. And the Nichiren Research Group back in the 80s um, had a particularly good group of people, um, active and innovative, and they were aware of the problem of, um, depopulation, which has been going on in Japan for a while. This move, the shift, um, from, uh, smaller rural cities into, or areas into, uh, cities and what that loss of rural population was doing to temples. If you've got an aging population, as you do in Japan, and if all the younger generation are leaving, that support group from rural temples, uh, was eroding and continues to erode to this day. And the Nichiren researchers were ahead of the curve in spotting this, and they traveled all over the country interviewing priests of temples in depopulating areas. And the booklet itself includes, you know, quite a formal presentation of that research, but it opens with, you know, I, I call it a poem because of the way it's laid out and the way it's written, um, but it was written by the head of the research center at the time, uh. Shomei Sensei, and I just think it really captures, as you say, um, kind of, not the futility, but the, the real fears of these researchers that the Japanese Buddhism could potentially, temple Buddhism could be going extinct. I mean, the teachings of Buddhism will not disappear, but the institutions that spread that teaching uh, are very much subject to uh, the same kinds of economic and social uh, concerns that any institution faces. And so, yeah. That's what, you know, it starts with a very, very clear sentence. Our temple is becoming extinct. And then it goes into describing the small rural temple that's been abandoned <laughs> and being overrun by, by weeds and asking how this could have happened and what, in a sense, Buddhism means in Japan. Um, and, and that's what really, just to finish that, that, that's kind of one of the big themes of the book that came out later. As I was working through it, is that these kind of very concrete challenges, so of facing temple Buddhism. This, for example, losing uh, parishioners, uh, depopulation, very concrete economic forces, are also being interpreted at, in more existential ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, temples, losing income is slowly transformed through the work of these researchers into what is the meaning of Buddhism? Um, are we still relevant in Japan today? And I think that poem really kind of captures that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's so great because it also brings us right into this... Um, dialogue and relationship between the existential and the material that's going to, mm. you know, continue to play a role through the book, not just in um, in terms of temples, the, the, the materiality of temples and of what it takes to, you know, upkeep a temple versus the sort of existential issue of the doctrines that um, the, the priests are or are not, you know, sort of promulgating at this temple, but also the materiality versus the existential existence mm. of human bodies in this context and what it means to, and personhood, right? Mm.
0: And the way they're all just so intimately tied together. I mean, I think Buddhist studies and and religious studies might traditionally separate those two, and I'm trying to bring them back together.
1: Right, um, and that's I think that works really well here. Um, so you you continue in you use this poem to set up um, what's ultimately going to be um, kind of the historical background in this chapter for what's going to go on to be the more um, contemporary or more modern. A uh, right. set of set pieces in the book, um, and this what this chapter does is chase trace the history by which temples um, came to be the sole source of funerary practices in Japan and grew dependent on the income from those practices. Mm-hmm. So the story, one um, uh, of the main points in the story is in the 17th century. So for those uh, early modern historians among us, I immediately gravitated to this. Um, oh. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. So this is great um, for us. Um, so in the 17th century, what happens and is uh, there's a temple certification system that's put into place, um, and a related parishioner system that ties the population to temples for you know what you say is the next 350 years. Because this concept of a parishioner or a danka um, becomes so important to the way you know the story plays out later in the book, can you explain for our listeners who may not be familiar with this um, what a temple parishioner or danka is and why it's so central um, to this history or this early history of uh, temples and Buddhism in Japan?
0: Right. Well, I mean, you, you basically uh, highlighted it perfectly. The The rulers of Japan in the 17th century are worried about the growing power of Christianity, um, and actually any group that might challenge their authority. And temples become organs of the state where you, um, people in villages, have to go to their local temple and get certified that they're not Christian. Um, Later, other quote-unquote, heretical groups are included. But the main target is Christians, and they would have to do things like step on an image of Christ or Mary. And we've got these wonderful kind of um, bronze images that have been worn down through thousands of footsteps. Um, And you can still see pictures of those online and in museums. It's amazing. But that initial kind of use of temples, temples quickly... Um, began to, I hesitate to say this, but take advantage of their new position. Um, Actually, uh, your colleague at UBC, Namalyn Hur, has done a lot of work on this, uh, as have others. But basically, temples began using this authority, the social authority, to... There are different verbs you could use here. Coerce is one that's been used. Um, I mean, it's much more complicated than just direct coercion. But basically, they people began to be expected to have all their funerals at that temple to help maintain that temple and support that temple, to have a grave at that temple. Um, all of those things develop over the following centuries. And the Danka system... Uh, also emerges out of that. And the Donka system basically means a family that has a grave at a temple um, and supports that temple. Um, you pay, depending on the temple, you would pay some kind of yearly um, fee, but you're also expected to, for example, if the temple needs a new roof The Danka are expected to contribute. Um, in some temples, if the temple son needs a new car, the Danka might be (laughs) tapped to help pay for it. There's a full, there's a really wide range of how the Danka and the temples relate today. In some temples today, the priest, uh, refuses. To charge the Dunka for anything, because a a because he doesn't want to burden them, or b because he is afraid that if he asks them for money, they will leave the temple. Um, so it's not an entirely one-way um, relationship. And the Dunka are also represented. Um, and now I'm moving fully into the present day, but the Dunka are represented uh, in temple leadership by um, they've got representatives that. Work with the temple priest to determine um, upkeep and direction of the temple. In some places, the danka are much more powerful than the priest. In others, the priest um, maintains pretty much complete control. Uh, that's the kind of work I'm looking at right. That's the kind of subject I'm looking at right now. But just to sum up, the danka have graves at temples. Um, are expected to have their memorials at the temple and funerals at the temple for their family and for um, Subsequent generations, and so your connection to a temple as a danka is multi-generational and passed on uh, to usually the son, who will maintain the grave and the relationship with the temple.
1: Great, and this idea of what the family is—right? This um, ea—am I pronouncing that? Absolutely. So this is something that you mentioned, I think, was this is a fascinating part of this for me. Um, you mentioned that in 1898, the Meiji Civil Code actually makes the EA, which is uh, an extended Japanese household. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's better to think of it, I think, in in, in pre-modern, or early modern, or even earlier times, as not really as a family so much as a kind of corp corporate unit of of households working together it's it's not a family in the sense that we would think of today
1: Mm -hmm. okay great thank you (laughs) thanks so much
0: it's it's still i i don't entirely understand uh, understand why we talk about it as a family i I think that's misleading but
1: yeah and that that character in chinese uh, jia is we often translate that as family, too. And I think there's lots of scholars who are also from the China side really interested in looking more closely and more critically at what, you know, this very simple translation that we tend to use for Jia in Chinese, which is the same character, family, really does to obscure the complexities of what that, you know, set of relationships and that concept really does um, trans-historically.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So this is the period. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Did you wanna That's
0: right? And, but so, but that family unit also. I mean, that corporate family unit. Let's call it that. Um, is also seen by the modern Japanese by the Meiji government as the key um, to unifying the state, um, and and it becomes something slightly different in that time. But it maintains that earlier flavor of you know of obligation of hierarchy. Um, Confucian ideals and morals are so deeply embedded in it. You can't distinguish them at all.
1: Great. Um, thank you. So, okay, so in this context of we have the Danka being introduced here as a crucial concept, we have the EA being introduced as a crucial concept. You also talk about, um, and you, you've been talking about um, the importance of money and economy and the the EA as a corporate unit. You go on in this chapter to talk about the importance of post-war land reforms, which made mm-hmm. temples um, more dependent on mortuary income, which in turn makes them appear kind of more complicit in what you call the commercialization of death, right? Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that also seems like a really um, crucial part of the continuing story.
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, if when you talk to priests about, you know, the last hundred years of Japanese Buddhist history, they talk about obviously the war. (laughs) Um, And then they immediately go into these post-war land reforms um, where, you know, large land holdings were broken up by the government, um, and people who were you know basically renting space to farm were then given the opportunity to buy it and, and you know it's it's glossed as land reform. Uh, it was a much more, I think <laughs> violent and fundamental transformation of the landscape than than reform really conveys. But temples, you know, for various historical reasons, uh, not all and not in all areas. Um, you know, there's a lot of variety here, obviously, but in general, temples could be holding a lot of, of farmland and would um, – that would be part of their subsistence. Part of their income would come from farming, um, from sericulture, from various uh, land-based income. And once they lost that land, if you if you lose all of that land, you lose all of that income. And what up until that point had been more informal in terms of income received for funerary services or memorials, uh, you know, in some places it might literally be someone bringing around a chicken or <laughs> some rice, um, then becomes more formalized. They become more dependent on that income. And so, again, I think you've got a wide range of of. Responses and you know some temples more aggressive than others, but I think that combined with the rapid growth in the Japanese economy shortly thereafter, and the, starting in the 60s, um, and a, a, a general shift more towards consumer uh, consumer culture, uh, all combined to really transform the temple income um, from agricultural based to funerary based. Uh, in a way, I mean, it, it was always funerary based, but I think it formalizes it, commercializes it in a way um, that it never was before.
1: Right. And and you actually um, end us off here by mentioning that it's exactly this increasing commodification of the ritual market and the funerary market um, that leaves open a space for funerary professionals to step in and start controlling the process in a way that hadn't been the case before.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Great. And I'll just, uh, before we move on to the next chapter, I just want to uh, point readers to um, page 33, um, in which you have a great description of uh, this Meiji funeral procession and this um, image in my mind that's never going to leave now, which is this kind of troop of nurses processing, <laughs> <laughs> um, processing yeah. with the funeral, which is just a great, um, very um, indelible now image in my mind.
0: Right. And they might not have even been nurses. They might just have been dressed up as nurses.
1: Right, exactly. This sort of possibly actors playing a part. And um, it's just, it's a great, very evocative moment in the chapter. Thanks. Um, so n- the next chapter goes on to introduce another of these really crucial concepts that are going to um, be important for the rest of the story, which is the idea of muen or abandonment. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you, um, for, again, for readers who, or for listeners who haven't yet read the book, um, can you explain the concept of muen and, and its importance to this story?
0: Absolutely. Um, you'll have to do the Chinese pronunciation of it.
1: <laughs> oh, I have to look back at the characters to do that. <laughs>
0: but so. and or, or musubi uh, in Japanese is, you know, this, I mean, it, ha- it has, it's a fascinating term, and, and that's the, the bonds, of the chat of the of the book is is n and n um plays a double role it's used um in colloquial japanese to signify all kinds of relationships um from the concrete to the mysterious um you know to say a fushigina can be kind of a, a mysterious destiny or fate but ketsuen is the bonds of family literally blood bonds um Mm-hmm. And chien is the bo- are the bonds of literally of of region, so the regional bonds that tie people. So all Japanese know these terms and use them. And um, at the same time, n is used in uh, traditional Bu- as a traditional Buddhist concept in engi of uh, samuppada or um, causal effect, and so the book tries to show that um, those two concepts of N, we'll get, We'll probably get to this later, but those two concepts of N are tied together. Um, and in terms of Mu'en, so going back to the kind of social context of N, of connections between people, either of blood or of region, Mu'en is the opposite of that. Mu'en means to be without those ties. And it's most commonly used to refer to the abandoned dead. Um, so those dead, who's, people who have died uh, in far off places, in wars, people who have died and are unidentified, but also people who have died and um, no longer have ancestors. I'm sorry, descendants, <laughs> to uh, care for them, are also considered muen. And every graveyard in Japan has this pile of of gravestones from older abandoned graves um, as a stark kind of reminder that these graves, although they seem permanent and are based on this idea of multi-generational families that pass on forever, um, are not and will eventually end up abandoned. And that's kind of the engine that drives the rest of the, the story.
1: Right, absolutely. Um, so, and this is actually um, this starts uh, a part of the book, it's actually a part of the book that's going to continue for the rest of the book, which starts incorporating really, really fascinating ethnographic accounts. Mm. So, I can't wait to to hear more about those. <laughs> um, right. So, I mean,
0: w- sorry. The other, the other thing to say about Muen is, um, you know, the the responsibility that people. This this takes us back to the poem or to the opening scene of the book, but. Most Japanese will tell you that, oh, I don't, you know, I don't really need someone to take over the grave, my own, my own grave or or memorialize me when I'm gone. You know, I don't care what happens. They say that a lot, but no one would ever want that to happen to their ancestral grave. The worst, worse than ending up muen yourself is, is being the one who allows that to happen to the family grave. Um, I can't emphasize that strongly enough. Thank you.
1: Well. Because, especially because this is such a trenchant and such a powerful concern, um, this chapter goes on to introduce, you know, taking a page from the previous chapter with this new changing family realities, changing um, social realities that come post war. Um, In modern Japan, these new realities mean that more people are in danger of becoming muen or becoming abandoned, and thus there's a need for alternatives in the funerary market. Um, And this uh, is a path that leads us into your discussion of the development of this really fascinating set of case studies um, in this book, which is Eternal Memorial Graves in the late 1980s and 1990s. So just to start us off with um, this topic, can you describe for our listeners what an Eternal Memorial Grave sure. is?
0: Sure. Just to do that, I have to set that up, I need to describe what quote-unquote traditional graves are like. Sure. Perfect. So in general, um, a grave, as I mentioned before, is, is passed on, usually to the first son. And in order to, and, uh, sorry, and, um, that son's wife and children would enter that family grave. So a woman will enter her husband's family grave, and that grave will be continued through their children. Now, um, if you – if when you move to a – say you move to a city and you want to start a new grave, you're a nuclear family and you want to start a new grave, you would go to a temple or um, a commercial grave. And at a temple grave in particular, you would need to prove to them that you had descendants to maintain the grave or they would find a reason not to sell you one. Um, so this excludes a lot of people. What if you don't have kids? Um, what if you don't get married in the first place? Uh, what if you're widowed or divorced or any number of situations where you don't fit into that traditional multi-generational family grave? Um, and so to combat that uh, in the late 80s, new forms of burial began to emerge that didn't require you um, to have descendants. Also, to join a temple grave, they would expect you to become a Danka, which, as I mentioned before, carries with it certain financial commitments, multi-generational commitments that people are hesitant to make. Um, so new graves emerged that would allow you to enter without, a, without becoming a parishioner and without necessarily having someone to take care of the grave after you died. Uh, and these are the so-called eternal memorial graves uh, that are the focus of the rest of the book. Right. And you can enter those. They're they're much cheaper than a traditional grave, which you know in Tokyo now, uh, you know, a grave with the space could cost forty thousand um, dollars. So it's a real commitment. Whereas opposed, whereas with some of these eternal memorials, uh, we're looking at under ten grand, and. Uh, you will never become muen. That's the guarantee that they offer.
1: Right. Excellent. Now, this chapter, um, after talking about this as a general concept in the history, which um, involves, uh, and I should mention for our readers, who this was incredibly striking for me, um, an incredibly striking image and description of bone Buddhas on 48 and 49, right. Right? which are these Buddhas that are molded out of the crushed bones of, is it abandoned? graves
0: oh, no, no not, not necessarily i mean there were some this temple traditionally was a place where those kinds of bodies ended up um but it also is a powerful cultic site and people line up <laughs> to have uh, their bones made into the next buddha yeah
1: it's amazing. It's just an incredibly amazing object to, to contemplate.
0: Yeah, anyone who's in Osaka, I would highly recommend stopping by uh, Ishin. It's a great temple. Um, it's wide open and it's very lively.
1: It's incredible. Um, so you describe this, and then you use this chapter as a way to set up what's going to be a series of case studies in the next chapters. Now, these case studies are built on um, for though again for those of us are, who are historians or who are most working mostly with textual materials, and you know. There's tons of text in this book, but you bring to life um, this amazing set of ethnographic resources and ethnographic um, texts really is, you know, kind of interview that you're creating that really give a completely different dimension to the story of modern Japanese Buddhism that's completely fascinating. Um, so before we get into these specific case studies, can you talk a little bit about um, what was your ethnographic process like? I think you mentioned early in the book that you used a combination of formal interviews and informal interviews. sort of um, can you describe in general what the nature of this process was? And it, it stretched over several years. Right? right?
0: Yes. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I was doing that work earlier on when I was a grad student at Kilt, at Kilt University. But when I went to Princeton, I, I, got a, I went back for a year and a half, uh, between 2003, 2004. Um, uh, thank you to the Fulbright group. Um, and, uh, conduct my main research over that period. Basically, you know, these the other thing that these new graves offer, besides you know, a guarantee of 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 care of poshima's care, they also the ones I focused on uh, offer kind of social space and events. So I would attend all kinds of temple events, and I would constantly uh, run into these people um, at the temple in in Nigata Myokoji, which is I'm sure we'll get to a little later. Um, actually, it's this chapter, but. Um, they have a huge summer festival at the end of August. I um, <laughs> every year I go and I volunteer uh, in the parking lot. And <laughs> after nine years, and now I'm a tenured professor, I finally graduated to head of. The parking <laughs> and I had some uh, some business cards made up. Say head of, of parking <laughs> coaching. Um, but it was so there. It was a combination of that kind of informal. You know, just seeing people arrive in their cars, helping them, um, to the graves, just chatting them, chatting to them about, um, what they were doing and who they were visiting, um, in combination with formal interviews. And for those, I was dependent on the head priests of, uh, well, the head priest, uh, of Myokoji and the head priest and the staff at Tochoji to select a range of people, uh, for me. Uh, and I think I got a good, fairly decent spread that way. I also, by going to events, I could speak to people directly. Um, and I met a lot of um, members in that way. And, you know, its I'm always amazed by how willing people are to talk about the most intimate aspects of their lives uh with a complete, not a complete stranger, but, you know, with someone they haven't known for very long. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm really grateful to these people for sharing, uh, all the things that they did with me. You but
1: are the head of parking.
0: I am the head of parking and, you know, that carries a lot of weight apparently in some places, but <laughs> I, uh, no, I, you know, it, it, you know, I, I'm just always amazed by how, you know, gracious people are and how willing they are to share, uh, these intimate moments, uh, of their lives. I mean, I heard. An incredible range of stories, obviously many of which are not in the book. Um, and you know, I, I have to say that you know, writing this book, you know, it was a great exercise, and, and I and I'm happy with how it went. But I think it, it changed me in ways that I I can't even begin to describe. These kinds of constant conversations about you know about the dead, about what happens to us when we die, about thinking about. You know, our future is beyond what we what we see in front of us. Um, it was a really powerful experience.
1: Well, since you led us there, why don't we continue this by talking about Myokoji? Okay. Um, this is, um, for uh, listeners, this is the next chapter of the book, and it's a setting in which we are introduced to one of the um, eternal memorial graves called Anon. Is that <laughs>
0: The, anon. anon.
1: Yep. Okay. Um, can you? So this means peace and tranquility, roughly.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and this is. Um, y- you use this chapter to explore the potential that this anon um, grave offers to members to contest social norms and ch- and the challenge also that this presents to temple Buddhism. Um, can you describe the anon grave for our listeners?
0: Sure. Um, the. You mean. Physically, or
1: (laughs) yeah, (laughs) maybe just Just give a kind of sense of the physicality of it, and sort of what's going on there.
0: Myokoji is a Nichiren temple in rural Niigata. Um, For those who know the Japanese, uh, know Japanese geography, it's not far from Teradonani, which is where the leadoff point to go to uh, Sado Island. And um, you know, it's it's tucked into this small hill. Um, it's got a lot of space around it, and it's got a traditional graveyard, but it also has this Anon site, uh, which was initially only one uh, large grave. Um, it's a large uh, octagonal structure. Uh, concrete, uh, gravestones around the outside, around two layers in and out, a small mound, uh, with plants and a small stupa. It looks basically like a Buddhist stupa. Um, and there are 108 individual sites within this one Anon grave. There are four of these Anon graves that, uh, that's the basis of the original Anon site. He made one. Uh, Ogawa, the, the head priest, and it was so popular they began building more. Uh, they built four. And then after that, uh, there was such demand that they had to build smaller versions, uh, little, indi- uh, little smaller individual mounds that hold, um, uh, eight Anon graves. And that's called the, the Anon forest. Um, it, it's really a striking scene. Uh, I, th- I think the pictures capture some of it. <laughs> and basically, the system is that you can buy an individual plot there. You can buy it for yourself. You can put family members in there. There's space for I think up to six urns, uh, depending on the size. And basically, you are in there for as long as you have an individual spot for as long as you pay the the nominal yearly fee, which basically is a way to prove that you're still there's still someone alive. Uh, and as soon as that fee um, stops, as soon as there is no one else, no one to continue taking care of the grave in that way, um, seven, it continues for 17 years, that individual spot. And then you're moved into the center of the Anon grave. Uh, the, the urns are removed and the ashes are poured in and mixed with other ashes in the middle of the grave, um, where they continue to receive memorial services every year. For example, at that summer festival for the dead I mentioned. Um, Although no longer they still receive these memorials, Buddhist memorials, but no longer as individuals, um, so they're in the shared space in the middle uh, of the anon grave. Mm-hmm. And then that space, open space becomes uh, reusable, and a new uh, family could or individual could enter that space. Um, Great. Yeah, that's the system.
1: Thank you. Now, you just brought up the head priest Ogawa, uh, Mm -hmm. and he actually um, has a pretty large role to play in this chapter of the book. What was it like working with him and interviewing him for the book?
0: Right. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, He is a really fascinating uh, character, and he um, has been very kind to me over the years um, and has taught me a lot. In fact, uh, I was just out with him a few days ago in Tokyo. Um, He didn't want to become the head priest like so many priests. Uh, He was not. You know, he had an older brother who he thought would take over the temple. Ogawa wanted to be, you know, a sociologist um, and studied with uh, this very famous sociologist in Japan. Um, he's a real project-oriented guy. He likes getting a bunch of people together and working on a problem and solving it. He was one of the researchers on that original Nichiren research group that studied depopulated temples. Um, so he's really he's he's proud to say that he's hated within the sect. Um, you know because of the success of the grave he's quite actually quite famous um now most people know him um but working with him was was fantastic he is very open um both in terms of temple finances in terms of you know problems that he has faced but also um very open about his critiques of institutionalized Buddhism, of not only of his own sect, but of institutionalized temple Buddha, Buddhism in Japan in general. Um, and he was not shy at all with sharing his insights. Um, he was very generous for this time. I, whenever I go to Niigata, I stay at the temple. Um, and he, of course, introduced me to uh, parishioners. And, and we had just amazing conversations till all hours of the night, as we still do up to the present day. Um, he, was, he was really a key uh, to the success of this project.
1: And it was really fascinating as a reader to read his description of the conflict between the demands of daily temple life, sort of what it takes Mm -hmm. to keep the temple running and his interest in studying doctrine, which he says here that he doesn't have as much time for, um, as would like, right. Right. It's actually really fascinating.
0: I made the mistake of telling him that I'm on sabbatical this year and (laughs) just, you will not let it go. He's just, he's just desperate to figure out how temple Buddhists can get sabbatical. So, I don't know. In his mind, it's grown to some kind of, yeah, we were at a, a temple study group uh, earlier this week and he's like, yeah, we got to be like Mark. You work a couple of years and then you got a year to do whatever the hell you want. You can just run around and drink and have fun. And I was like, just a second. I think you heard me wrong. <laughs>
1: For any graduate students listening to this, that's not what our lives are like. All right, win. <laughs> so, well, uh, except for sabbatical. Even.
0: Right, um, so sabbatical. Yeah, that's the best thing ever. But <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I mean, exactly that. He, you know, I actually brought him over to when I was still a graduate student at Princeton. I invited him over to give a talk at Princeton and then at Yale. Um, and you know, this was a great opportunity. I thought for North Americans uh, to, to to hear from him, but also for him to you know he hadn't traveled to the states in a long time. Uh, but what was what what was fascinating about it was it was all conditioned on not getting a call from the temple that would require him to race back and do a funeral. Um, You know, whenever I'm with him, his phone is always ringing. And, you know, you just never know when the call is going to come, where someone needs a funeral uh, or a memorial service. And this is an aspect of temple life that, that people really need to understand, that priests you know, are tied to that temple in in ways, uh, tethered to the temple in ways that are hard to imagine. Um, and so, you know, there was this constant fear while he was visiting us that he would have to immediately fly back. And that, that kind of gets at, you know, not only the daily life of running the temple, but just the unpredictability of the job of a temple priest, of not knowing when the next phone call is going to come.
1: Right or of not knowing necessarily who the successor is going to be, right? That you have this really wonderful moment at the end of this chapter where he is, um, when you're describing Ogawa's um, efforts to train um, at that, at least at the point where you're writing this chapter, his successor, and you liken it to in some way, Donald Trump's the apprentice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is Ogawa uh, to a T, you know, um, you know, there are various ways because Ogawa um, has daughters, uh, none of whom are going to take over the temple or marry a priest to come in to take over the temple. Um, he's had to search. In fact, he asked me quite <laughs> forcefully once uh, a couple of times at first joking, but then a little more seriously if I wouldn't be interested. No kidding. Uh, yeah. No, I actually get that request more often than you'd think. You know, they're like, well, Mark, you understand Buddhism and you speak, you speak Japanese and you know, how about it? But I I feel like I know too much to, to take over that job (laughs) right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, so Ogawa's idea, and this comes back to, you know, his basic distrust of his own organization, uh, was to find someone with, so with experience in a company, not someone brought up within the Nichiren organization, someone from outside it, um, who he could train and then send to get the more formal ritual training, uh, at the head, head temple, uh, Minobu, but, uh, at, on Minobu Mountain. And, uh, so he put out a, a, basically a call, uh, and just invited anybody to come in and train. And there was a kind of initial screening process. And then he picked a couple of guys and, and kept them on. Uh, unfortunately it, it didn't work out. Um, and he's still searching, uh, <laughs> for his successor. Um, yeah, I can't get into that conversation now, but, uh, it's really, uh, a problem.
1: Sure. Well, the, um, so the rest of the story also, uh, or the rest of this chapter also, um, introduces two case studies that we don't have. That I don't want to take the time um, to talk about too much here because there's so much else to the book that I want to make sure we get to. But just to um, signal to readers that this chapter introduces two um, individual um, figures, Naoko and Tome, who are both um, dealing with issues of what you call posthumous divorce, which is it right. so fascinating. Um, concept um, via the Anon grave and both sort of using this um, uh, posthumous divorce via the grave as a means of um, kind of asserting control over death and through asserting control over their death, um, asserting control over their life um, in really interesting ways. Um, yeah. So there's just such rich stories there. Um, but you go on in the next chapter to actually give us another example of a very different kind of um uh, one of these graves c- called uh, Tochoji, right and this is the end of oh,
0: temple. Yeah, or the
1: temple rather. Yeah. Um, and uh, at this Tochoji temple, you um, introduce the Endokai burial Society.. Yeah. Can you t- uh, describe this for our readers?
0: Okay, Tochoji is a, you know, it's a major Soto Zen temple right in the middle, the heart of Tokyo. In fact, I'm staying in a hotel in Shinjuku right now and Tochoji is about a minute and a half away. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, it's a it's got a long history, it's um, and it's got a traditional grave, but um, yeah, in the early 90s they or in the mid 90s they formed uh, a new kind of Basically, eternal memorial grave, and um, basically, it's multi-sided within the temple grounds. They've got this beautiful kind of reflecting pond as you come in the main gate um, between the main gate and the main hall, uh, with these little islands of, of stones, and each stone uh, has an individual name or family name, or individual's name on it. Mm-hmm. And but the the actual memorial tablets and ashes are. Below the main hall in the basement of, of Tochoji. And, um, you know, like Anon, you buy a spot, you maintain it, and after a certain period, the ashes are removed and placed into a communal space, also on temple grounds where they will continue to receive memorial services. Uh, Tochoji offers monthly events and yearly events, uh, to memorialize the members of Ennokai. Uh, and the Ennokai members now at 10,000, uh, are active in temple events. It's a, it's quite a lively urban temple. Um, they've also franchised, (laughs) there's a Nichiren temple in Tokyo that's trying to do the same thing. Um, and they've got another Soto temple in Chiba, in rural Chiba, um, about an hour, hour and a half away where they're also doing, uh, the same kind of thing. So it's an incredibly successful Model the most successful version uh, in Japan.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, this is this case study is really interesting um, because it's. Uh, you talk about the importance of um, Ennokai Burial Society providing in both individuals and families with the option of buying graves with no obligation at all to become a parishioner and without yeah. having to worry at all about descendants um, taking care of the grave, right? Um, right? So you kind of you use this really interestingly to raise the issue of what temple affiliation actually signifies in contemporary Japan and the sure the complexities of that. Um, which I thought uh, was really fascinating in this chapter and as uh, what I wanted to ask you about in particular as part of this and as part of your account for us of um, the experience of members of this burial society uh, in becoming part of this whole system you describe a a number of rituals that you either saw or took part in 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 Mm. great detail Um, Mm. and these were really, really interesting so one in particular, um, there's a ceremony for new members that you relate in really fascinating detail. Can you talk to us about that, a little bit and then talk a little bit about why it's significant.
0: Right, so basically, when you die in Japan, you receive a Buddhist posthumous name, which signifies you as kind of a disciple of the Buddha and signifies your new status. Um, but priests, it's like a priest name, but priests receive those names while they're living, and temples would like it very much if. Other people <laughs> decided to receive that name, not posthumously, but while alive. And if receiving that name uh, would signal and help enforce uh, more active participation uh, in temple activities while the person's alive, rather than <laughs> leaving it all to uh, after you die. And that's part of what Tochochi does. When you join me in Nokai society, you receive your posthumous name uh while you're alive. And, um, part of receiving that is this one day kind of mini Zen training camp, uh, where you, you dress in kind of in some way in, in not in robes, but in kind of what priests would wear when they're cleaning the temple or doing work. Okay. You clean, uh, you, you wash, uh, we wash the main hall. Uh, we sit, Zazen, a uh, very short time. I think it's like 10 or 15 minutes. And for the elderly, they can sit on a chair or opt out entirely if they need to. Um, and then it, it culminates in the ceremony where, um, all of the members stand on top of the dais where the Buddha statue normally is and, um, above the priests and the priests bow and pray to them. And then you receive, um, your posthumous name. So it's a very striking ceremony. It's un, completely unlike any experience any Japanese person would normally have at a temple, which would just be sitting while the priests chant and then standing up once to offer incense. But to be kind of the object of the priest veneration, uh, I think is very striking. Um, although, as one woman told me, you know, all she could think about was not falling off the dais. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's you know, it's this this kind of one day experience where they're you know given a taste of of Zen monastic life and also, you know, made part of the community. And at the end, they receive, uh, their posthumous name. They also write regrets, uh, we would call them sins on a piece of paper during the ceremony. Um, so it's, it's this kind of one day encapsulation of all these Buddhist rituals and rites. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, and this chapter does a really interesting job of really talking about the um, interplay of business and religion here. And so it emphasizes the importance of office staff um, who are not ordained, right, to the working of the temple and raises examples of, for example, um, the issue of making temple donations through bank transfer. Right. right? (laughs) Which is, you know, which is also really striking here. Um, Yeah. Now, this is only. one of many kinds of um, burial forms that are emergent in modern Japan. And you go on from this example to talk about um, th- the uh, something called the Grave-Free Promotion Society right, right. Um, and the scattering of ashes and other various forms of um, Grave free burial. Um, now this is also a really fascinating chapter for anybody interested in the kind of comparative, um, history or study of nature and ideas of nature and what's natural. Mm. Um, and you, you raise that really interestingly here. Um, um, so I loved that, but to kind of get us started first for, um, listeners who haven't read this, can you talk a little bit about, um, what, the what are forests of rebirth, for example,
0: Oh, right, right. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the Great Free Promotion Society also started around the time that Anon did. In fact, the head of it, um, you know, attended the very first Anon festival. Um, so they're all emerging around the same time. Uh, he was an ex, uh, editor, newspaper editor, yasuda But basically, the argument is that, um, you know, people are, in a sense, being held hostage by temple graves or multi-generational graves, and that there should be other options, and that traditionally in Japan, people were not put in graves, but were scattered. Um, historians generally use the word abandoned <laughs> rather than scattered <laughs> in this situation, in mountains and on riverbeds, um, you know, the general populace. So He's, you know, arguing on one, on one hand for a return to more traditional forms. But the other way that he sells it is in terms of land reclamation. Um, you know, this is a time at the late, late eighties of the economic bubble. Um, and of just mass expansion of development of land, golf courses and all kinds of things. And this is a way to kind of reclaim. Uh, natural areas and his idea was that certain forests um, at riverheads would be reclaimed um, and be be set off as places where people could scatter Mm -hmm. ashes and that those ashes, you know, um, chemically neutral as they are, would enter, you know, that land would be protected Um, it would ensure fresh drinking water for the cities at the bottom of those rivers. Uh, The idea didn't really take off. (laughs) Uh, but that was, and, and, and again, tying it to, to kind of protecting nature, this natural funeral, um, as they call it, uh, either scattering ashes in forests or on mountains or in the ocean, um, you know, without any human made objects, without any destruction of land, without any development, that was his goal.
1: But this scattering, in order to scatter human ashes, as you um, bring up here in very visceral detail, um, another fascinating part of this is that the bones have to be crushed. Mm. And so family members are actually responsible for physically crushing those bones. And some of the options given include an electric grinder. (laughs) Um, I mean, this really brings home, you know, the the sort of physicality of what it means for family members to actually engage with the, you know, their dead family members and their bodies in a way that's very visceral and very touching. Did anybody who you interviewed um, actually mention that at all or talk about that process?
0: Absolutely. I made sure to talk to them about that. this, this, yeah, uh, basically most of the people I talked to couldn't do it. They had to, you know, they had to ask some, uh, some company to do it for them. Um, they couldn't bring themselves to, to, because basically when a, when a body is cremated in Japan and 99.2% of all people are cremated in Japan, um, it's burned at a temperature that makes sure the bones are intact, because of uh, what you do after where you take the bones and place them into an urn in order from foot to head. And uh, there's a very detailed process that you go through with the family members picking up the bones and placing them in the urn. Um, So you're left with identifiable bones and they have to be, you know, the last thing Yasuda needed for the Grave Free Promotion Society were these, you know, skulls and femurs uh, littering the countryside. This was exactly um, the fear that a lot of people had when they first heard about the Grave Free Promotion Society. So they had to be grounded in a dust where they wouldn't cause any... where <laughs> they wouldn't freak anyone out, basically. Um, you know, abandoned dead, in other words. So, but... I didn't meet anyone who was able – I think I met one person who was able to do it himself. And everyone else was, you know, required a company to do it. Interestingly, I just met a, a Jodo priest who moved the bones of his ancestors into a new grave that he built. And he was in the process of grinding the bones of his father while I was at the temple. And he brought them out and showed me. How he did it, and how long it took it really is i mean as you say the materiality of it bones are hard um even after they've been uh baked and uh it's a it's it's not only emotionally it's physically difficult to do um and when it's you know when it's a father or a grandmother uh I think you know we can all imagine how difficult that must be.
1: Right. I can't even imagine that. I mean, that's incredibly powerful moment um, of this study.
0: Thanks. I I really wanted to get that, you know, these abstract discussions of death and burial and numbers, it's hard to, it is such a visceral, emotionally powerful subject, but how exactly, you know, to get at that was an ongoing problem.
1: Well, I, I think, I mean, this This book does this really well. And another moment in this chapter where that comes up, right, is you have another description of um, this other kind of forest burial where family members are actually physically digging holes for the remains of their family with their hands mm. right, and putting the remains in and then planting a flower or a tree or something yeah. um, to mark. And, and it's really interesting here because you bring up the importance of the fact that, you know, for for many of us and for um, in Japanese funerary history, history, knowing the location of your loved one um, or your relative so that you can go there and, you know, uh, offer um, incense and conversation is really important. And when you have this turn to um, scattering ashes or these forest burial, the idea of knowing that your um, remains are going to be in a fixed place that you can then locate and that your um, family members can locate is gone. Right. Largely gone. And that's also a really interesting dimension to this story.
0: Right. It's interesting the way the new eternal memorial graves, I think part of their success is because they replicate the fixity of the traditional grave, if not uh, the style of it and the rules. But that fixed location is, is important.
1: Right. Well, Mark, I don't, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know, um, there's a ton of other stuff in this book that I'd love to ask um, you about, and that listeners, I hope, will pick up a copy for themselves, because there's so much more richness in this. Um, but before we end, I just want to turn very briefly to um, the last chapter, which is gives a very different perspective um, on this whole dimension. And you turn here from temples to the broader institutional structures of the sects themselves, um, looking at how scholarly priests and sectarian researchers are taking up the issue of burial and graves, and it offers a very different kind of voice. Um, Can you talk a little bit about um, the work that this chapter is doing and the importance of these sectarian um, institutions to the story as a whole?
0: Yes. um, Thank you for that. It's, I mean, you know, you can't just, I mean, I think this is one of the knocks on, it's not a fair knock, but one of the knocks on it anthropological approaches to Buddhism is maybe that they're not always situating the the temple in the broader institutional flows Um, and I wanted to try and get at that now these the different sects are massive organizations with huge bureaucracies so you have to kind of pick a spot Um, And I was just fascinated by the research centers of the different sects. As I mentioned before, they've all got them. Uh, They started in the 50s and 60s, um, and they're staffed by sectarian scholars and uh, graduate students from uh, Buddhist sectarian universities. And they mainly focus on the texts and teachings of the founder, but they also are very interested in the contemporary uh, realities facing the individual temples and the sect as a whole. Um, You know, they conduct surveys um, and they they write these books. But I was interested, you know, initially the surveys were very helpful to me because they gave me hard numbers about temples and temple income and, and temple makeup. But it was also interesting to me to look not just at the data but really to look at the kinds of questions that were being asked, the kinds of questions that weren't being asked, and the way in which that survey data, the results was then repackaged and transmitted back to the temples through reports.
1: That was and, fascinating. I mean, and you actually, um, for listeners, uh, you give us uh, an example of one of those surveys in the appendix to this book. So we can right. actually see one.
0: Right. Um, yeah. A Jodo temple survey, as I recall um, it, it, you know that process really fascinated me, and I was trying to get at how the sect. You know, basically, uh, you train your priests and you license your priests, but then you send them back to their temples, and at that point, you really don't have any more in, uh, influence over them. And so, I was interested in how the organizations kind of transmit a message, and to what degree that message is actually being received. Uh, so, I was interested in this kind of this ideological uh, aspect. To the surveys and the way in which the surveys and survey results were used to transmit a kind of image of an ideal priest, an ideal priest activity back to temples, often an ideal reality that was very far removed from actual temple realities, uh, an idealized form that was very far removed from temple realities.
1: Right, and you one of the other really fascinating sources that you mentioned here um, in this uh penultimate chapter is a kind of practical manual for local temporal priests and um, which is also really um really interesting
0: yeah, I mean it, you just it gives it really opened my eyes to what they think their priests need to know. I mean, you really get a sense, and also that chapter looks both at the production by centralized researchers versus Um, productions of texts by more local priests and the gaps, uh, between them in terms of what, you know, sect intellectual, sectarian intellectuals think that temples need and what the temple priests tell us they need. Um, those gaps, uh, really told me a lot about, you know, both the institutional power flows, but also more about temple realities.
1: Thank you so much. Um, well, Mark, we've taken up a whole lot of your time. Um, and thank you so much for for giving your time like this to this discussion. Is there anything else about the book um, that we haven't had a chance to cover, but that you'd like to point out for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read it?
0: Um, well, actually, I mean, we really covered it uh, in, in great detail. I'm really happy. Um, I think the, the big thing I want to emphasize about the book um, is, you know, this is kind of a first foray into looking at contemporary Buddhism in Japan. Um, and I'm really committed to continuing this kind of work. And I hope uh, readers will see it as, um, as showing the importance and the need to look at contemporary forms of Buddhism, not only in Japan but in other countries as well. I think um, there's more work in other countries than there has been in Japan so far. But I'm hoping that that will change. I think the contemporary Japanese Buddhism is definitely a worthwhile object of study and can teach us a lot, and maybe even make some you know offer some suggestions about how to look at historical forms as well.
1: Absolutely, I, I agree with you. I'm I've, I've, reading this. I'm already kind of. Getting ideas about how to look at my early modern texts in China differently. So, thank you for that.
0: Um, no, that's great.
1: So, what's next for you? What are you working on now?
0: Um, well, as I mentioned, I'm on sabbatical in Japan right now, and I'm doing a uh, research project. Um, uh, in Chinese, it, or in Japanese, it's Koso and biographies of eminent monks. Is it Guo? Mm-hmm. It's like high, tall. <laughs> And then monk, and I forget how to pronounce it. <laughs> you, 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 Probably. As
1: if I saw the characters, I'd, I'd pronounce it. But anyway, biographies of eminent monks, that's what we need to know.
0: That, those are, you know, these traditional accounts from China of famous monks who do all these crazy superhuman feats. Mm-hmm. Um, my project is called Biographies of Non-Eminent Monks, and I changed the first character from um, eminent to small. Uh, it's much funnier in Japanese, but uh, or Chinese for that matter. <laughs> But basically, I'm traveling around the country right now. The idea is for a hundred, to interview 150 priests, um, from different sects, different ages, different levels of experience, from rural, temple, city, big, small, male, female, um, successful, failed, smart, uh, stupid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Every kind of
0: priest I can find, I'm interviewing, um, and I'm trying to get, the, the main themes that are emerging are, um, as I mentioned before, the idea of temple succession being passed on to a son. Um, imagine for example, that if your future happiness and success was premised on you producing, not only producing a son and producing a son who would become a scholar, but producing a son who would become a scholar and take over your specific post at your university, um, once you begin to think in those terms, you, you can begin to grasp, for example, what would happen to the level of education uh, at universities if that were to happen and, and the kind of institutional concerns that would arise around it. So temple succession is a big one. Training, um, directly tied to the succession issue, is uh, training organs that arise uh, around that problem about how to uh, train and educate these priests, often in very short time spans. And also, finally, about, you know, again, getting further and further at temple realities, um, like Ogawa's story, for example, about how running a temple um, works with or works against uh, doctrinal teachings, how the training of a priest um, often is very different from what they have to do once they take over a temple. So basically just trying to get further at temple realities, um, and priestly stories. So it's going to be very, um, story driven, narrative driven, character driven, I should say.
1: That's good. Yeah. uh, Sounds fascinating also.
0: It's absolutely a blast. Um, having a great time heading to Kyushu in a few days. Um, and, uh, and then up North, uh, in, in the new year.
1: Great. Well, good luck, and thank you again um, so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. It's, it's a fascinating book, and um, I hope lots of people will go on to read it.
0: Thanks, Carla. I really appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.